0: If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades.
1: Drinking, doing drugs, all those sorts of things, like that is what I found as I got older is the number one inhibitor is just purely my mental health. Every explorer, entrepreneur, investor, everything is basically slightly bipolar. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to bring your ideas from your head into the real world. To go from zero to one takes an enormous amount of energy. And nothing is a free lunch, so the other side of that energy is depression. And so the question is, how do you manage that?
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Jason Buck, an entrepreneur and trader specializing in volatility, options hedging, and portfolio construction. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Jason. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very nervous, honestly, because I've listened to quite a few of them. <laughs> And you and I know each other, so I'm afraid this is gonna be a therapy session. And so.
2: I'm not not that good of a therapist, Jason. You're giving me too much credit.
1: I'm already trying to remember, like, I I never even thought as a kid, you know, my name would be uh, Jason. This is not investment advice. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Please seek out an investment professional buck. But this is how I have to start every conversation now. So, speaking of a a unique trade, is the. To always have to have put a caveat anytime you you speak publicly or the, or anything gets hit recorded.
2: Yeah, it's it's so true, and you know maybe we'll dive into that a little bit because actually it's been it's been coming up in some of the conversations as you can imagine. But we do know each other, but we know each other having seen each other at events, so not for very long. Yeah, um, and not very well, especially in this sort of in this way. So I'm really kind of curious to. To dive in here a little bit um, and learn about a little bit more about your journey. So, I really appreciate you being here. So, you know, as we do, before we jump into the trades, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. You know, where are you from and what were you like as a teenager, young adult?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think like a lot of teenagers and adults, it's probably pretty complicated, right? But I, I grew up in rural Michigan. And I'm one of three kids. My brother and sister are, are twins, and they're only a year and a half younger than I am. So we grew up almost like royal tenenbaum style. Like you had to like really excel at academics, and you had to really excel in athletics. Um, so we I grew up in an extremely competitive household, to say the least. But we were all. Uh, my brother played ice hockey. I played soccer. And my sister was a gymnast. And and you can imagine the amount of practice times and shuttling not only all across the country, but all the way around like North America for the three of us. So it was a. Uh, quite a competitive chaotic house to grow up in and then in, when I was 15 years old I, I left and I moved to Florida and I, I lived at the IMG Academy, Sports Academy there as a soccer player and spent a few years before I went off to uh, College of Charleston to play soccer living at sports academies and seeing what it was like to train like a professional and you know some of my friends and, and roommates and um, classmates were all some of the best pro- professional tennis players in the world so it was quite a unique experience to at least have that too and, the, and all of the discipline and psychology around that and, and maybe if that applies or doesn't apply later in my life. I, I still don't have any idea. I,
2: I just want to stop you there, for because I think a lot of us know IMG, but for those who don't, especially maybe for people who you know might not be from the U.S. originally, I mean, to say that it's competitive is an understatement, and I think you're being <laughs> very humble. I mean, this is like the training camp for professional sports. I have a, a son who plays sports, and so he's very keen into IMG. And we tell him all the time, like. You look at it from a distance because very, very few people get to go there. So I can imagine that saying it's competitive is an understatement. I mean, this is like, this is hardcore pre professional training. That must have been yeah. so intense to go there.
1: It was. I mean, as I alluded to though, like growing up, my, my sister was an all end up being an all American gymnast. My brother played on the best hockey team in North America. So I was used to a very competitive environment. <laughs> You're like,
2: oh, this is normal. <laughs> Yeah. Everyone's superhuman.
1: <laughs> yeah, the very few times we actually got to eat dinner together, is it it's also an in t- intellectually competitive environment as well. Um, and I had already had some experience um, before I decided to go to IMG. I actually spent the summer before that at the Tawichi Academy in, in Bolivia, which was one of the most like hardest core soccer training facilities like in the world. And it was very like kind of like dirt poor and everything. So I spent an actual summer in Bolivia doing that really uh, competitive training before I decided to go to IMG and, and you know, left for my senior year of high school.
2: So I usually ask people a little bit more about, you know, sort of how they got interested in finance. But your first trade is actually part of that story, uh, which is trading tech stocks in 1998, 99, when you were still a teenager. So, you know, how did this come about? Sort of set the scene for us.
1: Yeah, so... I'll start with, it actually even starts before that. Like I bought my first stock at like 13. I think it was like American Standard because I had read an article that American Standard was going to put toilets in China and China has a huge population. (laughs) So it's going to take off, right? So like I begged my dad to buy me like American Standard stock, like the most, you know, like probably one share. Um, And then my whole life, I'm sure we'll get into a a serial entrepreneur. So uh, those are different forms of trading. And maybe hopefully we'll get into that, uh, uh, the idea of arbitrages and options as an entrepreneur. And I even, you know, listened to your podcast with Howard Linsen and, and you guys were talking about risk taking as an entrepreneur, and I think that's a misnomer. I don't think entrepreneurs are risk takers; we're risk mitigators. Yeah. You mitigate risk as much as possible, where then that leap gets smaller and smaller, and then you almost have to move forward uh, because you've you've mitigated as much risk as you possibly can.
2: So why at thirteen though? Like, did you have family that talked about finance? I mean, like thirteen, I, I live with one. He knows <laughs> about them because we talk about it. But that's you know, otherwise it's like you know, this is not a priority in a thirteen-year-old's mind usually
1: yeah so i was I was surrounded my whole life by uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, and like inventors. And then both my dad and my grandfather fancy themselves day traders okay and and I say that quote, and without disparaging either one of them, it was the stereotypical day trader that's uh, very analogous to you know golfers or fishermen. you know they they'll tell you about their big wins. they tend to forget about their yeah. big losses. um but net net, hopefully they're entertaining themselves and not losing too much money
2: right. So, is in conversation around you?
1: Yeah, I think the conversation was always around. My mother is an entrepreneur as well. So, it's like we talked about business a lot. Um, and so, maybe that's part of it, is I thought, you know, I read that article on American Standard and I'm like, I understand business. I'm 13. What could go wrong? <laughs> And then so in university, I went to College of Charleston in South Carolina. I played soccer there. And then uh, I started off actually as an international business major. And I found out it was actually really easy for me because of my whole life of like starting businesses and doing little, you know, side hustles as a, as a teenager that um, I eventually actually transferred to uh, comparative religions because the, the business side actually got to be too boring at the academic sense. But I think everybody in that time got caught up in the dot-com bubble. And uh, as our mutual friend, Med Faber likes to say, like it's his, it's his favorite bubble because it was like our first one. <laughs> and and to set the scene too is is, is that .com was so exciting too because it was also nascent. Like I remember I had a roommate at the time and we shared a desktop mm-hmm. that we bought together. Mm-hmm. And that was like the first computer I had outside the computer lab at college. Yep. So you you hear about all these things that were going on out in Silicon Valley on the West Coast and you kinda, everybody gets kind of caught up into that hype. And so why I think this is such an interesting thing and a a formative thing too is like, to me, it's very analogous to what's going on now when we had meme stocks or YOLO trading or or everybody disparaging the young for for trading, you know, call options with short time to expiry And to me, there's no reason to disparage young people for trying, right? Like they're they're excited, they're engaged and, you know, they're likely going to fail and that's fine because you're either going to pick yourself up from the ashes, teach yourself actually about options, Greeks or whatever you want to learn about and this is maybe the, the opening door we have to finance.
2: Yeah, why do you think there's such backlash against that? Because there's a lot of judgment.
1: Yeah, I think, well, part of it to me is there's nothing as perennial as the old try to disparage the young, mm. right? And so I remember like reading uh, something one time about, man, the way the kids dress these days, the language they use the music is atrocious. they listen to. Oh, the music, all of those things, except the one caveat I didn't give you, this book was written in the 12th century in Japan. <laughs> so... There's nothing we enjoy more, I think, than the old hating on the young. And I don't know why that is. I, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I always think it's interesting. But I, I always love that phrase that in a bull market, you want a 20-year-old. In a bear market, you want a 60-year-old. And so we miss out, I think, on a lot of trades by not combining those two elements within us or within a structure we create for our, like, inner investing portfolios.
2: There, there's also some of this is happening outside the traditional system, yes. right? Whether you think about online trading, not through traditional brokerage, or whether you ta- think about the interest in crypto, um, which is a completely different asset class altogether. So, you know, maybe that sort of, you know, those animal spirits are fine as long as it's happening and enriching the system that exists. But the young are notorious for experimenting outside the sandbox, right? Or the, the schoolyard. That's what young people do.
1: Do you think part of it is like, we don't want to learn new tricks as we get older, right? And so instead of dealing with the facts that like we don't want to learn anything new, we get very disparaging about anybody that participates in it because it's our our psychological immune systems are so strong. And that's what I worry about is getting older is calcifying my thinking, right? That, That I do not want to learn anything new and everything I think I've learned and I've achieved and I've earned the right to not have to learn anything new and nothing changes under the sun, but it's just categorically untrue. So that's what I I fear most is kind of like the disparaging idea because it's really our own internal psychology that we're unwilling to deal with. And because we don't want to learn anything new, we think we've achieved things in life. And and that's you know typically not the case.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I think fear, fear plays a role in that. Did you have success? I mean, how did it feel when you first started trading? Because it was a really sort of optimistic, enthusiastic time.
1: So I'd saved up the money with my roommate to buy a desktop. I also saved up some money as well to trade with. And so there was a, back then, you know, you you had all these new online trading platforms and there was a way that you could use some implicit leverage on those platforms. So you could almost trade like options. So even though I wasn't trading options, there was a way to get a a lot of leverage on like a weekly basis. And so I'd turned $2,000 into $100,000 in probably just over a year, but trading tech stocks, right? That's
2: incredible though. For a 19 year old, you must've been like, I am the king of the mountain.
1: Exactly. That's what I want to get to. That's why I think this trade is so interesting. Like I can't actually remember any of the names of the stocks or anything because it didn't even matter, right? You're just buying everything and everything went up. But the interesting thing about that is like, once again, without context, like in a bull market, you want a 20 year old and a bear market, you want a 60 year old, is that what I think was fascinating is how you start to delude yourself in that psychological immune system, right? We were the first generation that started to get this technology, right? So you go, ooh, I'm 19. Yes, I may not know what a 50-year-old knows, but they're too old and calcified and dumb to understand what I know about technology, right? I'm I'm perfectly positioned. I'm on the cutting edge. I'm my first of my friends with a computer. I'm the first of my friends with a cell phone. Like, I know how these things work. And you start to convince yourself of this narrative that you are a genius and you know what you're doing. And then the worst part is the reciprocal nature of actually get, having a positive P&L out of it. Just. <laughs> Reiterates to you something like so you're just you're just really just adding fuel to this ridiculous fire of hubris that you just think you're smarter and smarter than you actually are, not realizing the context of a rising tide lifts all boats, and a rising tide with a lot of leverage can really lift a boat pretty high.
2: So, what were you thinking? Did you have any doubts? Any idea like, man, I should take some profits. I should do something with this money. This is unbelievable. Or did you sort of hang right on into the explosion? When did it start to turn for you?
1: That's the best part about it. <laughs> it is without context. It's like, no, I was going to be so rich, Maggie, we'd never be talking, <laughs> right? Like I was going to own islands across the world. Like this was just the start of my journey. And that's the delusion we fall under, right? We don't go, wow, I made 10X or I made 100X or a 100 bagger. Well, wow, I got really lucky. I should monetize these profits and keep it moving, right? And and think about diversification. No, that's the problem when you're young is that you think that this is just the start of your journey. And I'm thinking, wow, if I made 100,000 this year, next year, I'm gonna make a million, then I'll make 10 million. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a billionaire before we know it. That's the delusion you live under without context for what's actually going on. And then hopefully over time, you learn how to monetize things. No matter what, your position sizing is always wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. If the trade goes against you, your position size too much. If it goes for you, your position size too little. And so those are the things that we can never really wrap our heads around. We only know that in hindsight. And so as you stated, I was extremely over levered and taking extremely too big of positions. And no, I thought the good times were going to keep rolling. And then it went from two thousand to a hundred thousand all the way back down to like four thousand before I cashed out, which is actually fascinating too, is like Do you think I was happy about, let's just say it was 100% returns? No, I wasn't, because as far as I was concerned, I just lost 95% of my wealth.
2: (laughs) Right, which is true, by the way. It was true. (laughs) Um, So was the decline painful, or was it wiped out pretty quickly? Did, Did you have time to agonize over the fact that you had many opportunities to exit?
1: It's also hard to think think back at the time because we now we're talking almost twenty five years later, yeah. and I don't think it was, if I recall correctly, it happened so quickly too, and you didn't have really time to be circumspect about it until much much later, mm-hmm. um, and realized kind of what happened and, and gave you context for it because you know we hadn't seen uh, a pure equity bubble quite like that, yeah. you know up until that time. Even if you had even if you had a historical references, you know usually you have this mix of equity and, and debt, and those you know, especially on the debt side that creates these deleveraging effects but I don't think we'd seen a pure equity bubble like that. And so it burst so quickly. And then, you know, it was kind of like easy come, easy go. And then the best part, as you know, when you're younger, is it's great to make these mistakes where your overhead is extremely low. Mm. And so even though, you know, it was very painful and you, you, you know, thought you were about to be rich, but you went back to, you know, I went back to sharing an apartment and, you know, living off a ramen noodle. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that terrible.
2: <laughs> what lesson did you learn from it? And did it happen at the time? Like, did you say, oh, this is a good lesson. I'm going to take this, take this to heart.
1: So this is kind of my favorite question. We'll probably get into this uh, later on as well. Is like, I don't think I learned anything. That's the hardest part, yeah. right? Like, I wish, like, if I was smart, I'd tell you all these things I learned. But if I'm honest, I was 19 years old. I didn't learn anything. Mm. I really didn't. But I think as long as you're young, the hard part, I think, for a lot of people, and I, this is what fascinates me, is like, The idea is when you're young and you may not, if you don't come from the wealthiest of circumstances, you're going to have to take some inordinate risks to make money, right? You're going to have to concentrate pretty, you know, like more than you normally would. And you're going to have to take a lot of leverage and a lot of risk if you want to amass wealth at a fairly young age, right? And then after you amass wealth, if you get lucky enough, then you want to diversify to keep that wealth. So the hard part is when you're trying to do that, you're taking extreme risk. And part of that risk is you're likely going to blow up. And so the funny part is you don't actually learn from those experiences till you have a lot of those experiences and you're much older. And now the compounding window has dramatically reduced. Mm. So now in my 40s, I'm like, okay, the real way to build wealth is to compound slowly through diversification, et cetera. But then I go, well, my lifespan, if I'm lucky, is going to be 80 years old. Like I don't have as much time to compound as I did when I'm twenty. And so this is the the friction I think that we all feel is at twenty, we we want to concentrate, take a lot of leverage and and try to get wealthy as fast as we can. By like forty, we realize that's not the path to true wealth. But then by forty, we don't have that many decades left to really compound wealth. So maybe you're thinking about it for like your kids or grandkids.
2: Yeah, it's so true. So in all of this, you know, if we get back to to where you are at this point, you don't really learn anything from it. I mean you move back in somewhere along the line here, you leave college. You end up in Turkey. I, I, how, this, how does this happen? So, is this a result <laughs> of the fact that you are <laughs> that you bombed out and have no money, or is this like you know what's going? What, what's describe this period after the dot com bust for you?
1: So. Uh... Uh, when I was in school, like I said, I, trained, I I switched from international business to comparative religions. And besides being around a lot of entrepreneurs growing up, uh, my father was a, a lifelong Buddhist. Uh, you know, taught I was taught medica- uh, meditation in rural Michigan, starting as like three year olds, four year olds, five year olds. Like we were started like really young. It's very unique experience. Mm-hmm. And so I was always fascinated by religions my whole life. So I would studied religions, you know, my entire life leading up to college. So then I switched to comparative religions. And then what I did is I started at the four hundred level classes. And then when it got time to come back around to take the 100 level classes, my junior and senior year, I was completely bored by it. Like just because my teacher had read the same Buddhist textbooks or Buddhist scriptures that I read, and their interpretation might have been different, it was it was just a weird scenario for me to be in. I just didn't necessarily enjoy it. And then also I wasn't wasn't having the best time um, on the soccer team as well. Like uh, you know, it was just you know, as a as a youngster looking to rebel, I decided to take some time off. And I was working in a restaurant owned by uh, a Turkish man in Charleston. And he said, I have friends in Istanbul. If you want to go there, um, you can make money. I was a street hustler in Istanbul on Sultanahmet where... I would go around and sell Turkish rugs to American tourists. So if they're coming in off the cruise ship, you know, whether this is smart or not, they would love to see a young blonde Midwestern kid versus like a, a Turkish street hustler. And so they would trust me more. And, you know, luckily I, was, I sold them these beautiful rugs. But, and then also, can you imagine at that time, we would also like, they would pay us and then you'd ship them and they might not show up to their door for like three to six months. I mean, there's just like, as you know, it's just a different time. And so, yeah, I I had, that, I had a unique experience Um both with selling Turkish rugs, but also hanging out. One of my other passions on the religious side was Turkish Sufis. Uh, and one of, one of the sects are known as the whirling dervishes. And so I spent a lot of time with uh, Turkish Sufis and, and Sufi sheikhs when I was in uh, Istanbul, too, trying to learn more about, uh, you know, different sort of like esoteric religions.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
2: This is not sort of the the, the I would say the typical path of somebody in finance. No. You have this experience, it sounds like you're really kind of exploring and finding yourself, which is which is super common at that time, but then you come back at some point. So why, why decide to come back? Cause you know, sometimes there's, if you find a life there that works, you know, it's exciting to be a world traveler and you've, why, what makes you come back and pivot to commercial real estate of all things, which is, which yes. is where you head next.
1: <laughs> so I, I'm extremely introverted. So working on the streets, approaching strangers was both really good and really bad for me. So it helps me bring me on my show, but all at the same time, like I kind of hate doing it. So eventually I come back and uh, like I said, my my mother was an entrepreneur as well. And and so she started off as a real estate agent, but then started like flipping properties. She was a house mm-hmm. flipper in like the 80s and 90s. So I had kind of really grown up around real estate and really understood real estate well. And so when I came back to Charleston, I started looking around and the, the real estate part was just really like it was very easy, not easy for me, but like easy in the sense that like I could really see it. Mm. And part of it was at the time when I moved to Charleston and what had happened since one of the recent hurricanes is like, a lot of people had renovated the the ground floors for retail space, but there's all these second, third, and fourth floors that had been sitting vacant for decades. So it was just clear to me this is an arbitrage, right? Like, if I can figure out something to do with second, third, and fourth floors and people aren't valuing those, then I have a value-add space there where I can do really unique things. And another part of it is like, you know, as you travel a lot, you can bring those ideas from... Europe or New York yes. or San Francisco and bring them to Charleston in your time traveling, right? Yeah. It's 20 years behind or 10 years behind. So there's things like fractional ownerships or um, hotel lease to own. There's all sorts of interesting things that I brought back as well. And that was one of the biggest things I did was to take properties that I felt were underutilized, renovate them, use the second, third, fourth floors for, you know, office space to condos to, you know, really you know, or even fractional ownership. And to me it's a it's a artistic form just like any other. It's like you know, I can't paint or sculpt, but it's really interesting if you can shape buildings in a city, it's a, it's a form of sculpture that actual people work through, live in, and, and mm-hmm. it's a part of their lives. So it's a really, to me, a highly creative endeavor.
2: So we're going to get to your second trade, but it was important, I think, to lay the groundwork for all of this. So you, you're doing well with real estate, commercial mm-hmm. real estate. It's making you happy, but... Dun dun dun! The great financial crisis <laughs> hits, right? I think we yeah. that 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 for anyone who lived through it, by the way, I feel like that that sort of like gloomy music is is always in the back Ooh. of our minds because it was a really terrifying time. So I'm guessing that, and it just hit everything. I mean, everything kind of ground yeah. to a halt. It was really kind of very dark. Um, so commercial real estate, no doubt, was impacted. So you make the decision to pivot from commercial real estate to trading options. And I think this is so interesting because, you know, often we're finding on these podcasts that some of the most pivotal trades are – and meaningful trades are these life decisions as much as they are the actual asset class you're moving in and out of. Why go back to trading and leave something that you obviously find joy in, which is real estate?
1: So (laughs) – as we're going to find out like all my best trades turn to my worst trades. And then like you were saying, like, what is success? It's depends on what time frame you bookend it. Is once again, did I learn much from the late 90s bubble of, you know, like over leverage and rising tide lifts all boats? Obviously I didn't. I was a commercial real estate developer going into 2007. And I say that because, you know, everybody goes, you know, History doesn't pee it rhymes and people think they can get really smart about it. But part of the rhyming is, it's gonna look slightly different every time so you can convince yourself every time that this time's different. So that's the really hard part, right? And so what happened was, I mean, we're doing fine as, as real estate developers. I mean, you're using leverage in real estate. Everybody knows that. That's that's why most people do like real estate. But we're doing you know, more a commercial development side. And part of that is it's short volatility trade. You need, if you have a project that's going to take two years to completion, you need the world today to look like the world in the future. So you need a very low volatility environment. If volatility picks up, all of your expectations and your pro forma and where you expect the the deal to pan out are not going to work. And so that's kind of what happened is if like you can hedge your risk, like let's say you're, you're doing a development that you're building out a a dozen condos in a building and you're using commercial space and etc. And so to mitigate your risk, you get down payments for those condos when they are going to get renovated and brought to fruition. So people put up five, 10% of down payments. And so then you go to the bank and so you have a hedge risk position and you get your bank loan. Well, in 2007 when the world ended and that's you said that music dun 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 is like people really have no clue like and even you and i it's like uh, adam smith talked about the vivacity of impressions is like over time they fade and it's almost like a story we tell ourselves now but the pain at that time is like you thought the world was ending mm-hmm. like you thought we've had a nice ride this whole capitalism thing's over and so that was part of it is like those people just walked away from their deposits so you're just left like with these buildings that you have there's nothing you can do with you're midstream and now volatility's hit the market liquidity's dried up globally and there's nothing you can do about it. And so this is what led me to think about options was in early 2007, I got together maybe a half a dozen of older real estate developers that were all like in their 60s and older. And I said, look, I'm seeing cracks in the lending side. Are you guys worried? And to a man, all of them said, no, this time is different. And what so what I had to learn later in life is that real estate uh, commercial real estate developers are some of the most paranaturally optimistic people in the world. And of course they don't they don't think about that at all because they have they have literally like two options. It's like one they default they go bankrupt and then they start over again, which they all do in every cycle, or you go like the Donald Trump route and you want to get as many loans as fast as you can. So when things started to really crack and break down, I did feel like I had some insider information, so to speak, in that I knew who the riskiest lenders were because I'm seeing them lend to the people buying my condos. Mm. So I see those cracks and I get really worried. And so what do I start doing? I start um, using options to buy puts on the banks. So I see the crash coming. I start buying put options against the, the banks and the financial services industry. So you're like, great, you hedged out your risk. Well, I ended up losing money by buying puts on the banks on the way down. And you're like, how is that possible? And this is one of the best learning lessons in life that I think a lot of the current YOLO options traders are learning is your implied volatility, your vega matters. It's the price you pay. And so I was being too aggressive. I was trying to buy shorter term, let's say one month out, 20% out of the money put, um, and not knowing my price I'm paying is based on that vega or the implied volatility. So after those cracks started to happen, you know, dealers start pricing up that implied volatility. And even though I was delta or directionally correct, I was still not making money or losing money on those trades, which is mind-boggling when you're like, wait, uh, I bought a negative 20% of the money you put, it moved 10 to 15% towards my strike. How am I not making money? Mm. Right. So you think you got it right and you're but you're also trying to buy these lottery tickets in a way. And so you're just burning through that premium. So it's amazing how you can be so right and call the housing market and still not make a boatload of money and, and hedge your risk that way. So it was like, it was both a, a winning trade and a losing trade at the same time. But that's the one that really got me to really dive in to learn more about options and options pricing and Greeks, et cetera.
2: Yeah. So, and this is, you're right, options. I always think options and commodities are two of the hardest markets because they're sort of like a multi-pronged, you know, sort of octopus that you're trying to figure out because there's so many cross currents that can, that can hit you or things you have to be aware of at any given time. So the commercial real estate gets hit because of the great financial crisis. Now the options uh, thing blows up because you don't know about that one thing. So it's one thing to lose money when you're a teen, yes. but now this is happening again and again. How do you handle the setback?
1: Not well, not well at all. It's literally like being in like the fetal position for years because like you said, you've done it again to yourself. And then you also the first time it was okay because it was like a rising tide. then this time you thought you were developing a skill set. Mm-hmm. you thought you had a particular skill. you thought you were very successful and you're playing this you know genius game and then also that once again that feedback loop of making more money. Everybody around you thinks you're special. you start to think you're special. And so when it cracks so violently like that, you have an existential crisis. You have no idea who you are anymore. Everything you thought you were, you thought you were intelligent, you thought you were hardworking, you thought all of those things. It put me in a a tailspin that honestly probably took me years to come out of um, because it's one thing too to be able to take entrepreneurial risk and lose your own money. But when you do it for family and friends too, Mm. it just compounds that exponentially. And you feel like the world's biggest piece of shit. And I'm actually surprised to this day I've come back at all from it at all, like because it was just the depths of that like despair and existential um, angst and crisis and like trying to figure out who you are and then realizing like oh I thought I was developing a skill set for life now it's completely gone I may have been a complete idiot and I don't have any other skill sets to fall back on now I'm getting into my like late twenties early thirties you're just like what am I what did I do with my life like it it was a really 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 hard time for I think a lot of people in in our generation.
2: And you were someone who your entire life had a track record of being exceptional. <laughs> you you yes. know, from be, from from the time you were very young, you were exceptional at sports. You cruised through school, things were easy for you. You always knew more than yep. everyone else around you. I mean, without I mean, you know, like it or not, I mean it sounds sounds like overly, you know, complimentary to you, but life was telling you this. So it's not for lack of intelligence. So you can understand, I suppose, why this would be such a hard moment, right? Because you're doing everything right. You have the raw materials. So, why isn't it working out?
1: Yeah, that's the most frustrating part. And that's what you have to, you get real honest with yourself real quick, right? And you realize that all of those accolades, like you're saying, that the outside observers have given your whole life, you don't, you start to question if they are true. And what you find out is like, you're not a, a genius or a moron. You're just a person, mm. right? And however anybody looks at you at that given time frame is based on their own psychological makeup, but also like it's a it's a short time window. Once again, it's like, oh, I'm successful right now. I'm monetarily successful and that's what you exalt. So then that looks make, makes it look like I'm smart. But as soon as I lose that, I'm not a complete moron either. I'm still the same person. So it's like you start to really, it, it, it takes time to rebuild, but you start to really worry about in, intrinsic, motivations and self-worth versus extrinsic. And that's, that's what it really taught me. But like you, it really is an, an ego crushing scenario and and it's easy to talk about it now. And quite frankly, like I definitely needed it, but at the time I wouldn't have believed you if you told me it was gonna be okay. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the, I remember there was a point where, I'm trying to remember it was like maybe 20, 2009, 2010, my sister was graduating from University of Chicago Medical School. I had to go live with her for a while cause I couldn't really afford a place to live. I was like couch surfing with her. And she had got us two different kinds of jobs. One was giving out samples at Whole Foods in Chicago. Another one was we would hand out flyers at like the Taste of Chicago or like on street corners with Steins. And I'm sitting there thinking like, my sister just graduated from University of Chicago Medical School. Like a year ago, I was worth $5 million in net worth on paper. And that's what you learn really quickly what net worth is. And now we're standing on street corners. It really gives you a lot of perspective really quickly.
2: Yeah, humbling, I'm sure. How much does control matter to you? Like, did you think you could control these events if you had done it right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I have like OCD and I'm a bit of control freak and much more so back then than I am now. Um, as far as like influencing events, yeah, that's the hard part. And then, you know, the, the weird easy part that I don't agree with is like, if you're in a short vault trade, like what real estate was at the time, is a lot of people blow up short vol trades mm-hmm. and then they just keep coming back and they go, it's a black swan event. Nobody saw it coming. And to me, it's like, that's your job as a fiduciary responsibility or as an investor to kind of see those coming or at least hedge your risk for those coming. Mm. But like you think about like Bill Wong, like he's blown up three times, I believe. So if you really want to be on the Mount Rushmore, he should go for a fourth. I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but like that's what short vol is, right? You keep blowing up funds, you tell everybody it's a black swan and you go out and raise more money. Mm. So yeah, I'm not sure much how much control they necessarily have because they, they then you know, uh, when they, they think they have control when they're making money. Right. And then when they're losing it, it's somebody else's fault or it's the economy's fault or the fed's fault.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a line between, you know, I'm just thinking about you having to fill out your 15 minute increments and planning it all. So you yeah. you know, you're a planner, you're disciplined, yeah. you practice and you get better in some parts of life. How do you make peace with being in an industry where it seems like it's really hard to do that? I
1: think the way we, I think about it now, and based on those experiences, is like you prepare, you don't predict, right? Or you start to get an, enough self awareness where you build structures around yourself that are impediments for you to do anything stupid again. So not only am I like a very planner and very methodical, you know, we're all complex schizophrenics. Is I'm also prone to artistic narratives and, and probably over leverage as well. So like you have to think about those things, right? And how do you how do you keep yourself from hurting yourself? And hopefully you can build structures in place that do so, or or partners, etc.
2: I love that phrase, prone to artistic narratives that that's yeah. that's fantastic, so your third trade, and I think I know you don't like to categorize them because they all feel like your' best and worst at the same time, but I think we can categorize this as one of your best. We're moving into the the good trades, and that's going really deep and immersing yourself into this options trading after you blow up around two thousand and twelve. I mean, this is essentially doubling down
1: yeah it it isn't it isn't so everything from. 08 0708 informs what we do now. And what I mean by that is like that pain when I was actually, you know, years later able to come out of that pain. I was like I was thinking about it a lot and and very circumspect about what it means to be an entrepreneur, investor, risk taker. And I thought there has to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. And especially when you have these global liquidity events like we experienced in 0708, is it doesn't matter how good you are as an entrepreneur, if global liquidity dries up, you're kind of screwed if you have a long-term project in mind. And so even though a lot of and then people think, well, it's not really possible to hedge entrepreneurial risk. And I like those really hard hard to solve problems. So this is where I came back to to options and volatility trading is I figured there had to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. So it, it behooved me to really deep dive and learn much more about options. And so one of the options trades at the time, it's, it's not necessarily related to what we do now, but it is, I think, philosophically, was one of the trades I came across was trading the IV ramp in earnings surprises. So what that means is, when a stock goes to announce earnings, um, the options around those earnings, like the price, is going to generally consolidate as it goes into earnings. So volatility is going to seemingly be low, but based on the last quarter's earnings and the ones before that, then the, the dealers are going to start to price in more an implied a higher applied volatility for the distribution of possible outcomes. So as we get into you know one week, two weeks prior. To an earnings announcement, so you're gonna see implied volatility start to pick up all the way into right before they announce earnings. And then it's a vol crush, volatility collapses. So it was kind of a trade given my background is like being very agnostic to direction or, or what's gonna happen in the markets. I started to look at buying straddles and strangles on a stock that's about to announce earnings that week. And then you're not direction, you're not worried about direction. You're all you're trying to do is ride that ramp of implied volatility. So once again, Vega implied volatility was what burned me in 08, trying to short those banks. Now I'm trying to take advantage of implied volatility and apply that ramp. And a lot of people would trade three, seven or 21 days out. Eventually, I started figuring out that buying at the opening and selling on the close before the earnings announcement, I was just riding that IV ramp intraday. And if somehow the market collapsed, I have both calls and puts or the market rip higher, you're protected there. So you have a limited downside and you're just based on this structural kind of arbitrage of implied volatility increasing. And then my favorite part is that that agnosticism to directional and markets. And you're only in the trade for a Mm. And so you have all these, um, you know, earnings announcements every quarters. The problem is it's a capital constrained, liquidity constrained kind of trading strategy. So you can't do it in large size, but it's a great way to kind of learn about, learn a little bit more about options trading and have trades that are fairly market neutral, but you're just trying to take advantage of that that Vega ramp.
2: Mm. So it must take a certain amount of resilience to be able to just go in the deep end and immerse yourself in a market that's, been really tough for you. So what is it at this point that you think pushed you to do that? I mean, is resilience something you think you've always had, or is this something you developed along the way?
1: I mean, that's probably the best part about athletics is building resilience, Mm -hmm. but it's not something I generally focus on. Like I try not to think about myself as a resilient person or any of those things. I think about myself as a highly curious person. Mm -hmm. And so when you have something like that come up and I start to learn about a trade like that, my curiosity is what deep dives. And it's, and it's, Almost a twenty four seven. Like I have a trouble sleeping, um, and so like it's it's probably about a, a twenty hour a day, seven day a week process. And so those are the times when that curiosity is what drives me. Um, the resiliency or relentlessness, I yeah, I'm sure it's there, but it's more driven by that curiosity and just finding out, you know, secrets or the keys to puzzles. It's really puzzle solving at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, I just was gonna say that puzzles. So you, you got it got the best of you, but you wanted to understand how it worked. It was yeah. a puzzle that you didn't, or a problem that you didn't understand.
1: Yeah, and I don't have that thing that like a lot of traders have to about um, when they get burned by a trade. It's really hard for them to get back in. Mm. You know, like sometimes, you know, that's probably the best time, and then you're worried about your psychology when maybe you should be re, uh, reassessing that trade from a from a new perspective. And I think that's very hard for people to do, but hopefully, like curiosity will allow you to to reassess. Yeah.
2: So, at what point did you feel like you had mastered this area? You know, what was the definition of success for this trade?
1: You can do really well on, the, on a trade like this, and so. Except for, like I said, it's a very capacity constrained idea. So you can't, a lot of times you're trying to trade the most liquid um, stocks, but even then, like you're talking a capacity of a few hundred thousand dollars. And if you're, if you're looking to make, you know, a few points per trade, um, you can make a really good living out of it, but it's not going to build real wealth. And so it's more about that. It's like, okay, I can figure this out. There's other things I can figure out, but this this casino is too small. Mm. We need to go to like the biggest casino in the world. It's more like it's more about that perspective. Because at one point I used to count cards in baccarat, and I think as every card counter finds, is like, oh, this this capacity constraint casino sucks. <laughs> like, let me go to the biggest casino in the world, which is markets.
2: So your fourth trade is also one of your best and that is launching the cockroach fund in 2022. So we are in that trade right now which is fun to talk about. So how is this different? So what are we calling you now? Are you you've gone from being a trader, a day trader for yourself to what is this? What are we doing?
1: I was obsessed with the idea from Claude Shannon called Shannon's demon. And it comes from um, Maxwell's demon about entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. And the idea was, Claude Shannon was just talking about an MIT lecture, I th- believe in the late 60s, early 70s. And he showed that if you had a stock that was highly volatile, that went up 100% in one day, or on, on one coin flip, and then it w- or it got chopped in half by 50% on another coin flip or another day, a lot of people would go, okay, I take 100 minus 50, that's 50 divided by two, is my arithmetic return is 25%. And he's like, not so fast. There's what this thing called volatility tax or volatility drag, right? So if we just walk through it quickly, mentally, it's like, if you had $100, you flip heads, you made 100%, you're up $200, right? You flip tails, it gets chopped in half, you're back to 100. So you end up right where you were because of the volatility or variance drag. Same thing is like, if you start with 100, you flip tails, you're down to 50 you flip heads, you double it, back to 100. So you don't end up going anywhere. That's the idea around the, around the concept. But what Claude Shannon wanted to show, almost like Maxwell's demon trying to use two chambers of gases and trying to reduce entropy, the idea was that if you did took that same, same highly volatile stock and you applied 50% cash and you rebalanced the cash after each trade, then you could actually increase the compounding of that trade. So you're trying to increase the your, your compounding or up to your arithmetic average. So that was it was a really interesting concept where you're just taking advantage of volatility and that volatility drag to try to create a rebalancing premium. And so that idea fascinated me almost the same as the options trade did because you didn't have to be, your directionally agnostic. Mm. So once again, it was like the idea of just using math to try to get ahead in trading, right? And so the problem was at the end of the lecture, Clyde Shannon, they asked, you know, could you do this? And he said, no, the trading cost would kill you. So that And that was in the 60s and 70s, and you couldn't find a volatile enough stock. Well, I started thinking about because I've been trading you know, futures on and off for the, like two decades, is I was like starting to look in futures, trying to find a, a trade where, you know, you can use that implicit leverage of futures to try to have that kind of daily volatility or weekly or whatever you're looking for. And at the same time, is you can actually improve Shannon's Demon. Instead of having a an uncorrelated flat asset like cash, you can use a negatively correlated asset And that would actually improve the rebalancing premium on Shanna's Demon. So I was just searching and searching and searching and searching and searching, trying to find some negatively correlated assets. So that's how I stumbled into this volatility trade, because VIX and S&P are negatively correlated, um, to put the caveat on that, most of the time, just because we usually have shocks to the downside. It gets different as volatility increases. But that was the idea, is like, you could trade this intermarket spread, which are called like the short, short trade, where you go short S&P, short VIX, and that's your hedge. Or you go long, long, depending on the term structure on Contango and backwardation. But what's more important is you have to get your ratios just right between the two because VIX is a lot more volatile than S and SP.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.
1: But my point with, with all of this is I'm trying to learn these trades about volatility, uncorrelation, negative correlation, and agnostic about market direction because after trading both of these strategies for a long time, at the same time, I was following these other volatility traders online and seeing what they were doing, other options traders, and teaching myself about all of what the, the different picture of what they were doing. Until eventually, you know, I was always picking the brains of other managers, other platforms of like, you know, how do I combine different strategies together if I want to really manage family wealth for multiple generations. And so even though I was teaching myself options and, and VIX and volatility, you know, it's really hard for retail to have access to these kind of products. And so I ended up... Uh, Meeting my partner online through a mutual friend, uh, Taylor Pearson is our, uh, my business partner at Mutiny Funds. And in 2018, we were talking about these ideas of of hedging, you know, via tail risk for people that read like Taleb or Chris Cole or Mark Spitznagel, and you know, family and friends are like, "How do I do this?" And if you don't have 100 million plus, nobody's going to pick up the phone. And so what Taylor and I decided is like, you know, probably better entrepreneurs than traders. And so I don't need to be looking at a trading screen all day. If, if we can figure out a way to provide access to these like long volatility, tail risk, commodity trends, strategies, et cetera, mm-hmm. we can build much better total portfolio solutions. So that's what we decided is like better entrepreneurs than traders. Let's build something that's a blue ocean for retail to have access to for the first time um, so they can actually hedge their portfolios and kind of muddle along in whatever global macro environment we're in, where you're not necessarily worried about these accesses of inflation, deflation, growth, and recession. And so what we built is kind of a our version or a modern version of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, where we just use best practices and active management techniques to try to build a, a very robust portfolio. So I like to say is like, we're trying to build the least shitty portfolio, right? If you go back to my history, right, it's all about being a genius or having a crystal ball. And I've just retired from that crystal ball game. I don't think anybody knows what they're really doing. We're talking about the future at the end of the day. And so I don't care about hero trades. We're trying to build the least shitty portfolio that can really manage your savings over you know a multi-decade time horizon.
2: So you're trying to take risk out or protect against risk. Yeah.
1: We're trying to reduce luck. It's interesting. Like uh, a lot of financial media and everything is about these hero trades or lucky trades, mm-hmm. and I like that's what my life experience has taught me. Yeah, you might get lucky for a little while, but nobody's lucky permanently. So if you can reduce luck, and we say that you know more fancifully from the you know noise to signal ratio, but that's all we're trying to do is have you know reduce the luck uh, part of, portion of our portfolios because even people don't realize a, a sixty-four portfolio, 40 portfolio is very lucky um over the last four decades Mm. it's you know so it's like do you believe you're going to be that lucky over the next four decades i find a hard time with that
2: yeah you said you're a better entrepreneur than a trader what did you mean by that uh, it's hard to say that because like you're doing well trading options and that would certainly be enough for someone but why go why go in this direction
1: Because one, I don't feel there's that big of a difference between them. And that's why I was taking uh, umbrage with your Howard Linsen thing about like the best entrepreneurs are trying to mitigate risk, right? You're trying to find out arbitrages, options, like all those sorts of things within a structure of an entrepreneurial venture um, that's trying to mitigate risk as much as possible. But what I find the the really um, unique thing, I think maybe being an entrepreneur versus a trader, is you're scratching your own itch. And there's a lot of things that annoy you in the world. And they just keep annoying you day in and day out until you have to do something about it. It's like, if nobody else is going to do this, I'm going to do something about it. And that's what it was boiled down to is like, I really wanted this product to exist that we built with Cockroach Fund. If somebody else had built it, I would have happily been part of it. Um, I wish they would have. uh, Because as you know, there's a lot of pain along that journey. But yeah, that's what I think it is. It's more like that, that bug, not a feature. Uh, as an entrepreneurial brain, is that that itch becomes so uncomfortable that you have to do something about it. And to me, that's the difference between maybe a, a trader and an entrepreneur. Even though there's a lot of similarities, and and the one of the biggest things that we alluded to earlier is the, it's a a, a form of. Uh, self-awareness for lack of a better term is like there's not too many jobs in the world where you show up on a daily basis and can have a P&L that goes negative and so you have to deal with a, a lot of your emotions it's like it's easy to be a holy man on top of a mountain it's a little bit harder when your p and is negative on the day or even worse your in-laws P&L is negative and is and you are having breakfast with them and it's it's figuring out like how do I just make this come to fruition and it's and it's the diligence every day to just slowly move towards that goal and eventually hopefully you you somewhat get there but at the same time, it is it is unbelievably crushing to manage other people's wealth. Mm. Like that pressure on a daily basis is really uh, severe, and everybody tries to mitigate it through thinking about them almost like you know poker chips or whatever, and trying to think about abstract concepts. And you know, unfortunately, in our industry, we start talking about tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, right? And it becomes very abstract. But at the end of the day, these are people's savings. And and I have lost families and friends' savings before and blown up. And I know what the pain of that feels like. So I don't know if I'm just a severe gluttoner for punishment, but I, I do feel the pressure of that all day, every day.
2: How do you sit in that discomfort as your occupation?
1: I think, yeah, I think you get used to it. It's like going back to the athlete stuff as well. It's like, you know, you're in pain all the time in training, right? To, to get better, you have to break your body down. Um, and so, you know, I just... Well, the way I talk about it now, and I, I think this has been great on some of your other episodes, is um, we're discussing all of these trades and all this history, but what we're really talking about at, to, for me at the end of the day is like mental health, mm. right? So if I know I'm preternaturally driven to build a, a product or to build a company or to build you know, this cockroach fund that we built, well, I'm eventually going to just get there naturally through my natural curiosity and resilience, But to get there, nowadays I have to manage my mental health. Mm -hmm. And so, what I mean by that is like, you know, whether it's uh, watching what I eat, exercising, getting enough proper sleep, you know, not necessarily, you know, drinking, doing drugs, all those sorts of things. Like, that is what I found as I got older is the number one inhibitor is just purely my mental health. Because part of it is, as I learned, uh, thankfully at a young age, there's a book called Hypomaniac's Edge that shows that, like, kind of every explorer, entrepreneur, Investor, everything, is basically slightly bipolar. Because as you were referencing, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to bring your ideas from your head into the real world. To go from zero to one takes an enormous amount of energy. And nothing is a free lunch, so the other side of that energy is depression. And so the question is, how do you manage that?
2: That's a great point. That's a great point. Because you're depleted. Yes. Like, constantly. So you're constantly energized, and constantly depleted.
1: And that's why it's a bipolar expression through hypomania, right? It's like, yeah, you have unusual amounts of energy because you're so inspired and like you can then just, you can go into a flow state and you can work for hours and hours on end. But then like like I guess it's not a free run. You get depleted. And then the other side of that is can be pretty dark. And so if you could try to, mitigate, I think about it as allostatic bands are ones that are really huge. If you can try to create more homeostatic bands and try to, you know, reduce that that variance once again in your emotional states, you know, through different practices in your life, hopefully that helps mitigate it to, to a certain extent.
2: Is this a lesson you think that you you bring from the other trades and life experiences to this moment now? Yeah, I
1: think that's, I think that's part of it is knowing Like I said, when when you're younger, you have to concentrate and take uh, on a lot of leverage and a lot of risk to make wealth. And then as you're older, you need to diversify um, to keep it. And so when you build a portfolio that's about extreme diversification to manage multi-generational wealth or or multi-decade savings is you have a really long-term time horizon. So that's what helps me kind of mitigate it is like we're thinking multiple decades into the future. You know, like I don't have any kids. My partner doesn't have any kids. But I think about him having kids and his grandkids hopefully running Cockroach Fund one day. So this is the way we try to think about it. So hopefully that keeps you um, on an even keel so that way every day doesn't feel like a sprint Mm -hmm. because we're running a marathon. But unfortunately, life is especially in, in my uh, predisposition is kind of like sprint, recover, sprint, recover, but over a, a marathon horizon, and so that's the way I, I I try to think about it is to remind myself that this isn't um going to get done today or tomorrow or next week. Um, you you put those little sprint goals in there, but otherwise we're we're looking at a multi-decade time horizon.
2: So many people are kind of trading on their own, and I think it's made handling the losses really difficult for them especially if they don't have that much experience. Is that something you worry about? Or do you have experience, you know, for somebody who does spend a lot of time alone or, or prefers your own company? How, how does that work when it's, when it's tough and you're having those kind of days?
1: We never know the personal struggles that people are going through. And I think that our extremely advanced society through specialization, internet, et cetera, opens us up to even more mental health issues. Mm. Um, in, in both good ways and bad. And and there's probably hopefully more help and more acknowledgement of mental... Like if we go the other way, we're acknowledging that there's mental health issues and that's okay. I think my generation, you know, our generation and older has a really hard time with mental health issues because it was something that wasn't talked about and it showed weakness. Mm. And so I have a really hard time actually talking about it because I, I still worry that makes me a weak person. Mm. And given the household I grew up in and the experiences I had, it was all about mental toughness. And so to this day, I was having a conversation the other day. I have no idea if I'm mentally tough or mentally weak. But what I do know, the only thing I have learned is you're going to have those ups and downs. You try to mitigate them as much as possible with lifestyle choices and just kind of hope for the best. Because the other part of our conversation is I'm I'm dubious of free will. So I'm not sure how we we turn that boat around if, if somebody is truly struggle, struggling. Yeah. I, I really don't know the answer to that.
2: For me, it's about community too. And I think this is why I ask the question all the time because I think we have had a, a, a change or a breakdown in tra- traditional places people found community. Uh, and so they're replacing it with things like Twitter. and. But I'm not sure they get the same things out of it. And so I'm curious. Or I think people are seeking, yeah. I sense people are seeking community and so I like to hear how it plugs into people and, and where they find community and what it brings them, if anything. For some people, it may not be comfort. For some people, it may it may be stressful, and this is a relief. But I'm just curious about this change. I think we're all struggling in that environment somehow.
1: I, I really agree with you, but also at the same time, I agree with what you said about maybe there's another side to it as well It's like Sebastian younger wrote a great book about uh, tribes, about community. And I think that if you read a lot of stuff on religion and a lot of people would argue that our lack of religion today is that lack of community. Right. And so this is why we maybe have more of a mental health issue. I don't know. The only thing like you said, is I'll put it on the other side, Is like, I don't feel a need for community mm-hmm. or if I do, it's maybe one, two or three people. It's a very small community that of people I trust. And so like, that, that may be part of it too. And then I always thought, you know, people had mentors or community and I found those in books or online reading and everything. So it's like, and I know there's, you know, great lines from like Goodwill hunting of like, no, but like, you know, those are just books. They can't talk back to you. But like, that that's how I have the conversations maybe inside my own head. So maybe it's all those voices in my own head provides the community I need. Um, but then otherwise, yeah, having a, a support of just a, a few close people. And I think that's maybe the difference between introverts and extroverts. It's like, what's the size of mm-hmm. that community? Um, so maybe, I mean, that's the way I think about it is like, I'm not somebody driven towards community, but I do have a few people in my life that do, do help me out or, or that, I, that I lean heavily on.
2: Yeah. What advice would you pass on to others considering, you know, making a big trade or a pivot in their life?
1: Uh, one is when I lived in Brazil, a friend of mine, I think about this very often, told me, he said, I don't give advice cause I certainly don't take any. And I was just like, I, I mean, he said it best. Or I think about people like, what advice would you give to your 19 year old self? And I go, well, my 19 year old self would never listen to my current old ass self. So there's, that would be kind of pointless. And so, uh. I'm not sure what advice we can give. I could give people, nor do I have any. I I have my subjective experiences that hopefully I've learned something from, but I'm always even dubious of that. And and then, you know, part of advice assumes we know what the right thing is. Like when you brought up too about people trading or losing money or not having community. The other thing that popped in my head was the trader Ed Sakota had a great quote: "Is everybody gets what they want out of markets?" And so, some people love to gamble and lose, and that's what gives them joy or entertainment. So I just don't know what people want, right? Like it would take me so much to like actually like I'm, I, giving advice is so anathema to me because I just I just don't have a need to give.
2: That is absolutely a fair and honest answer. And I appreciate <laughs> the fact that you have been just doing it off the, off the cuff, uh, Jason. That's what we need. That's what we're having these conversations for.
1: That's fantastic. And I I told you before we started, like this format is just, you are truly excelling in this format. And I just, I love the conversations you're having within this rubric of your four trades.
2: (laughs) Well, I love, I love, I always take something away and I think it's so, I love actually that last line. I hadn't heard that before, but maybe the advice is figure out what you want from the markets. Maybe that's the advice. Yeah. I think that,
1: People that that read Market Wizards, Um, Market Wizards were my favorite books more than Buffett. And the idea in Market Wizards that I think you can truly pick up on is there's a lot of ways to make money or be entertained in life. You have to figure out one that aligns with your personality.
2: Jason, appreciate your honesty and your soul searching with us. Thank you for being on My Life in Four Trades. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake.